I invite ruling elder Paul Hempfill from Fresno Reformed Presbyterian Church to come and bring us God's word. Well, good morning, and uh, uh, we bring greetings from the Fresno Reformed Presbyterian Church. Uh, we're just down the road. We're a little south of Belmont by Maple. You guys are a little north of Belmont by Palm, so we're geographically close, but uh, more importantly, uh, we consider you a sister congregation, and we have great affection for you, and we pray for you often. We enjoy the times we do joint worship services with you. And uh, we especially pray for you now as you uh, venture into looking for the next uh, pastor and minister to, to serve you. Um, so uh, with those greetings in place, I invite you to go ahead and turn your Bibles uh, to Psalm 42 and 43. Um, and as you turn there, we'll read that together in a moment. I just want to mention a couple of things about that. Uh, as you turn there, you'll notice, obviously, Psalm 42 and 43 are two psalms, as they are in the Bible there. Um, but some have thought of that really as one psalm, uh, sort of together, 42 and 43. And I think you'll get that sense as we read through both. We'll, we'll look at both today. Uh, they really go together. And the other thing I wanted to mention is, uh, as you go through it, you'll see sort of three sections or three stanzas uh, followed each time by a refrain, the same refrain. And that refrain is, why are you cast down, O my soul, and so forth. And so I just sort of want you to see that structure, uh, uh, sort of a stanza, that refrain, stanza, refrain, stanza, refrain. And then the last thing I just draw your attention to is, uh, oftentimes in Hebrew poetry, like this psalm, uh, there's in the middle, the very middle of the psalm, the verse that is there is sort of the theme or the um, kind of the, the critical point of the entire psalm. And you'll find that in verse 8 of Psalm 42 this morning. So it almost looks haphazard as you're reading it. It, it seems like such a different tone. Uh, but as we read that, uh, just note verse 8 of Psalm 42 being a very critical uh, verse in the midst of this. So with those comments, let's uh, go ahead and read together now. I'll, I'll read for us Psalm 42 and 43, and reminding us all that this is the very word of God. Psalm 42. To the choir master, a masculine of the sons of Korah. As a deer pants for flowing stream, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God, with loud shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to, God, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation 
and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with a lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Let me uh, pray for us briefly. Our Father, as we now consider this passage of Scripture, Lord, we do pray that as you have promised that you would not let your word return void, Lord, but that this would be a word that pierces our soul, uh, that we would have uh, ears to hear, hearts to apply uh, your word to our lives, Lord, and that we would be encouraged, that we would be built up in Christ, that we would be drawn closer and closer to you. And uh, what I say in weakness, we pray that you would use in power. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, in 2015, the band 21 Pilots uh, came out with a song that had the following lyrics. I was told when I get older that all my fears would shrink, but now I'm insecure and I care what people think. Wish we could turn back time to the good old days when our mama sang us to sleep, but now we're stressed out. And that song, Stressed Out, uh, became known by many people as sort of the anthem song for the millennial generation. Uh, the millennial generation is, uh, at least stereotypically, a group of people that uh, have been bombarded with global news all their life, 24-hour cable news, uh, social media, all those things. And so they see the horrors and the troubles and the difficulties of life all around them all the time. And it has caused them great uh, angst and, and, and really depression and sorrow uh, just sort of as a, as a generation. And um, while I think there is sort of a sense that depression is rising in our society, uh, there's another sense that depression has always been a part of what it means to be human. Uh, you could think of the 1979 song by Pete St. John, uh, The Fields of Athenry. Or the 1965 song by the Rolling Stones, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. Or the 1940 song by Jimmy Davis, You Are My Sunshine. All of these songs and many more songs from every genre, from every era, uh, oftentimes deal with depression and sorrow. And as long as sin and death have been in this world, uh, sorrow and depression have been uh, companions in that. And I want to mention that uh, depression and sorrow are not something that's just reserved for the non-Christian, right? It's not something that only non-Christians deal with and Christians never deal with depression. No, we as Christians deal with sorrow and depression. So much so that the famous preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a book called Spiritual Depression. Um, so depression and sorrow are something we have to grapple with as Christians. We have to deal with it. We're not exempt from that. We're not immune from that. And interestingly enough, if you look at the book of Psalms, the, this uh, book in the Bible, this book of Psalms of, of songs and poems, uh, you'll find that a lot of people have said uh, the book of Psalms contains every type of human emotion you could think of, the whole gamut of human emotion. And so we shouldn't be surprised that the book of Psalms spends quite a bit of time on sorrow and depression. Just a couple of examples. Psalm 6, have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are troubled. 
Psalm 31, for my life is spent with grief and my years with sighing. Psalm 88, O Lord, God of my salvation, I have cried out day and night before you, for my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near the grave. And Psalm 102, my days are consumed with smoke and my bones are burned like a hearth. So we see this in the whole book of Psalms, this common theme of sorrow and depression. And when we look in particular at Psalm 42 and 43, I think we see perhaps the most strongly expressed emotion of uh, depression and sorrow that exists in the Psalter. And uh, if you notice the title of the Psalter, right, at the, or the title of Psalm 42, it says, To the choirmaster, a maskil of the sons of Korah. The word maskil is a Hebrew word. We don't actually know what that means. It's not translated into masculine. It's transliterated, right? Meaning we don't know what it means, so we just spell it in English the way it sounds in Hebrew. So that's what masculine is. Uh, some commentators have said they think masculine means instruction. And so this is an instruction for us. Uh, regardless, we should always look to scripture and say, what are we to learn from it? And so I want us to look at Psalm 42 and 43 this morning and say, what are we to learn uh, from the psalmist here? What is God teaching us uh, when we think of sorrow and depression. And so uh, I like to have sort of a one-sentence sermon lesson to, to keep, and, and this is that this time. In the midst of external tragedy and internal despondency, wrestle with God as you cling to Christ. So in the midst of external tragedy and internal despondency, wrestle with God as you cling to Christ. And we'll unpack that in under kind of four points, external tragedy, internal despondency, wrestling with God, and clinging to Christ. So let's jump into our, our first point, external uh, tragedy. And I think uh, we've read through Psalm 42 and 43 and just a, a quick reading through it. I think it's obvious that things are not going well for the psalmist. The psalmist is experiencing very difficult things, but let's dig into that a little bit more and, and see uh, what I mean by that. And so I think we can actually see uh, three ways in which the psalmist is uh, really experiencing a crisis in his life, three ways uh, that we see this external tragedy manifest itself in his life. Uh, first, we see that the psalmist is being pummeled by the waves of life. If you look back at verse 7 of Psalm 42, it says, Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. So we see that sense of being pummeled by the waves of life. I grew up in Colorado, and one of the most favorite pastimes of mine was when my family would go to the local water park in Colorado. It was called Water World. And, you know, loved the whole day, but especially loved when we would go to the wave pool. And as a kid, I would swim out or run out and then swim out as far out as I could and, and be ready. And then the waves would start, and I just loved it. And go up and down, and just the thrilling, exhilarating nature of that, I just loved it. It was sort of the highlight of the day. Well, years later, I'm a father now. I have my own children, and I live here in Fresno. And I take my kids to a water park. Uh, maybe you've been to Wild Water in Clovis there. And I've taken my kids to the wave pool that's there. And my experience as a father with children in a wave pool is very different 
than it was as a kid, right? I have four children, and we're out there, and the waves come, and I'm just trying to keep track of them and their heads and make sure they're above water and make sure the inner tubes around us aren't uh, you know, coming on top of them, and it's extremely stressful, extremely hard. And then in the moment, it feels like the waves never end. It's just you, you get it figured out, and then another one comes, and then another one comes, and another one comes. And, of course, with a wave pool, it does end. I think it's about 15 minutes. But in the real life, in the psalmist's life, we see these waves coming again and again, pummeling again, and it never stops. And notice, too, he doesn't talk just about waves. He talks about a waterfall, right? Imagine being under the waterfall, the pressure of that water pushing you down, flipping you over, keeping you from coming up. A very apt way that the psalmist used to describe that overwhelming sense of being pummeled by the waves of life. The second way we see, I think, in the psalm of this crisis the psalmist is facing is he's facing oppression from his enemies. Uh, You can see that in particular in verse 3 and verse 10. Uh, Verse 3, my tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? And then again in verse 10, as with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? You can see this is an intense oppression. Uh, If you look in particular at Psalm 43, you'll see that this is really an ungodly nation coming against the very people of God. Uh, This is intense oppression uh, from an enemy, and the psalmist describes it as such. I want you to take particular note. If you look at verse 6 of Psalm 42, I'll, I'll read that once more. It says, My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mizar. If you stop for a moment and think of those three geographical locations, all of those are sort of on the borders of the promised land, on the edges of the promised land. And and again, some commentators have really thought that the psalmist here is recounting his experience of being exiled. So an enemy uh, nation has come in, has fought, has uh, won, beat the Israelites, has taken them into captivity and are, are taking them out of the promised land. And here he is as he's being forced out, walked out. He stops at the border and he looks back. He looks back to the promised land that he's leaving behind as he remembers it. And so I think we see this oppression is as significant as that. It's a man being exiled from his homeland. Uh, extremely, extremely severe suppression. And notice too, we just read verses 3 and verses 10. What are the enemies doing? Not only are they doing these physical things, exiling them and so forth, they have to mock them. They have to mock the psalmist while they do it. They're saying, where is your God? Where is your God? A very wicked, wicked thing. And then thirdly and finally in seeing this external tragedy, notice that we see that the psalmist is far from God, okay? Throughout the Old Testament, and included in this psalm, uh, the geographical location, right? There's the, there's the temple, it's in Jerusalem, it's in, it's in uh, the Promised Land. All of that geography, all of that location was so connected to the very presence of God. And so as the psalmist is being removed from his homeland, removed from Jerusalem, removed from the temple, there's a sense of being he's removed from the very uh, presence of God. And, and that is a significant thing. Well, let us move on to point number two then, which is internal despondency. So in our first point, we look more at the external, the external tragedies he's facing. But we also see in the psalm how the psalmist really describes his own uh, feelings, his own emotions, his own soul as he grapples with those. And it's really a feeling of internal despondency. And we can see that in four ways. Uh, first, the first way we see it is the pain of remembering 
the good old days. Okay, so I think everyone in this room has a sense of what the good old days are, and we probably all disagree about when that exactly was, right? But we all agree it's not now. Um, but there's a sense of the good old days, uh, remembering them, and we see this in verse 4 of this psalm. Look at how the psalmist remembers the good old days. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with a throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Okay, so the psalmist is remembering that joyous time of gathering with God's people, going to Jerusalem, going to the temple to worship God. And as he remembers that, he's not happy, right? He's not, that's not giving him good feelings inside. That's causing him pain. And for many of you, maybe you've lost a parent or a child or a sibling or someone, someone close like that. Uh, maybe you're driving along the road and you hear a song or you hear a turn of phrase or you see a picture or something reminds you of a memory of your loved one. It's a very good memory, but it causes you pain because you've lost that loved one. This is what's happening to this psalmist. He's thinking back. He's having this memory, and he can't go to the temple. He can't go to worship God, and so it's causing him pain. Uh, the second thing we see in terms of his internal, uh, internal despondency is constant and paralyzing sorrow. Um, look at verse 3. My tears have been my food day and night. What a statement, right? He can't even eat. He's, so, he's just weeping. The only thing he can do is sit there and cry. And perhaps you've dealt with that. Perhaps you've dealt with a depression where you just can't do anything. You feel paralyzed in your sadness. You wake up in the morning. You can't even get out of bed. You can't get the energy needed to just go to the kitchen and get some breakfast, right? It's, it's a hard, hard thing. Uh, perhaps you've seen uh, the, the TV commercial for the candy bar Snickers where somebody has taken on this persona of a famous person known for their anger, like Joe Pesci or someone, and they're being a jerk and mean and everything, and someone hands them a Snickers, they take a bite of the Snickers, and they're back to their normal, nice self, right? And the idea is you just needed a, a Snickers. You were hangry, you know, you were hungry, you were angry. Um, well, is that not true in our depression? Sometimes the thing we need the most we just can't do. We need a good night's sleep. We need to take a long walk in the neighborhood. We need to have a hearty breakfast. We can't do those things because we're paralyzed in our sadness, and it's just almost, you know, it's, it causes it worse and worse and worse. So the psalmist has that constant and paralyzing sorrow. Uh, the, the third thing I want you to notice here in terms of his internal despondency is back to the waves. Uh, we see him drowning uh, with, those pum you know, with those pummeling waves that happen. We already looked at that sort of from an external way, right? Verse 7, uh, your waves are, are pummeling me, uh, the waterfall, things like that. But think of it from really uh, from his standpoint. He's, he's drowning, right? He's, he's being pummeled and he's drowning and it's overwhelming him. And this is how it can be when we're uh, facing depression, right? There's sort of one thing happens after another. We lose our job. Uh, we receive an unexpected medical bill. Our car breaks down. Uh, we're rear-ended, you know, as we sit at a stoplight. Uh, we spill ketchup on our shirt right before an important meeting. Our kid breaks some family heirloom, whatever it is, right? But it's not any one of those things that sort of drives us over the edge, right? But it's the again and again and again and again of it happening. It's a straw that breaks the camel's back. And again, I think that's what the psalmist is saying when he says, I'm pummeled by the ways of life. It's again and again and again. Well, the fourth thing we see here in terms of his internal despondency is that the psalmist is dying from thirst for God himself. 
the, the last three things we saw are, are deep and intense and difficult, but this one, I think, is the most intense, the most difficult. And the psalmist, to describe that at the beginning of the psalm, uses the imagery of a, a deer, right? A deer panting for water. And it's a very uh, familiar thing. We probably all heard that passage of scripture as the deer pants for water, so my soul longs for God. But I think as we think of that imagery of a deer panting for water, we shouldn't think of sort of Bambi and the deer of North America that are in lush forests. I think we should think more of a desert. Um, I don't know if you guys ever watch nature documentaries. I love nature documentaries. And there was one that I watched a while ago that was focused on Australia. And it kind of centered in on this, in the middle of the continent of Australia, there's this huge desert. And it's very desolate, very dry, like all deserts are. But every 10 years or so, when the monsoon seasons to the north are just right and, and everything, there's so much rain, so much flow of water, that the middle of this desert, all this water flows into it and fills it up, and actually fills it up to be the largest lake in the entire continent of Australia called Lake Eyre. And it's there for several months, and all sorts of creatures and wildlife come and you know, use the water, and it becomes a place of abundance, and it's just a totally different place. But as the desert heat wears on, week by week, day by day, uh, that lake begins to dry up. And most creatures get that and notice that and leave while they still can, but some don't. And as that lake shrinks and dries and shrinks and dries, there's creatures that are there, uh, animals that are there, antelope that are there, things like that, that simply don't have any water and don't have the strength to get out of the desert. And so that uh, antelope, that creature, whatever it is, uh, then, then dies. And so I think that's the imagery we should have when we hear as, as the deer pants for water, so my soul pants for God. That's what the psalmist is saying here. Um, the other thing to note here, we mentioned how the psalmist's enemies are mocking the psalmist, saying, where is your God, where is your God? I think the reason that's so painful for the psalmist is because at the end of the day, he's asking the same question. Look at verse 9. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? And then look at verse 2 in Psalm 43. Why have you rejected me? Okay, so as the psalmist is reveling in his despondency, the worst thing, the worst thing he's feeling is that God himself has turned his back on him. Uh, I, I want to pause there. We were sort of two points through our four points and, and just think about uh, one thing. It, you know, th this is pretty deep and raw emotion that we see in this psalm, in Psalm 42 and 43. And I don't want us to just pass over that. I want us to think about how can that apply to us? How do we take that and apply it to our lives? What can we do about it? And I would suggest sort of two things. First thing I think we really see is we really don't want to sugarcoat it. We want to be honest. We want to be uh, true to the, you know, we, it's okay to be upset. You know, we're American Christians. We're used to sort of putting a good face on, making sure everything looks fine, coming to church, not being too vulnerable, all those things. But we see with this psalmist a very openness, a, a vulnerability, a willingness to say life is hard and I'm upset about it. And I think we just need to recognize that it's okay to be honest. It's okay to be upset. Uh, the other thing I want to mention here is notice what's ultimately important for the psalmist. He is, of course, upset that he's being exiled. He's upset that he's being taken from his homeland and all the temporal things that would come with that, a loss of your home, a loss of your job, a loss of everything. Uh, but what bothers the psalmist the most is that he's being taken away from the very presence of God. Uh, in Exodus 33, 
you know, the Israelites are, are wandering in the desert. They come to Mount Sinai. That's where God gives the Ten Commandments. Moses is up receiving the law of God. And what are the Israelites doing while he's up there, right? They begin to worship the golden calves. And uh, as Moses is dealing with that, there's one interaction in, in Exodus 33 where God basically tells Moses, you know what, Moses, you and the people get up and go and go into the promised land and I'll send the angel of the Lord before you and he'll conquer your enemies and you'll take possession of the land and you'll have the you know, land flowing with milk and honey and all these good things. But I, God, will not go with you. And, and he says, I won't go with you because uh, your sin is great. And if I'm with you, my anger will, you know, will uh, cause my wrath to come upon you. So I will not go with you. And what does Moses do? Does Moses say, okay, thanks, God. We'll have the good life. We'll have military victory. We'll have this. No, he says, God, unless you go with us, we will not go. Right? And God relents and God goes. And so the psalmist, in the same way, he's more upset about the fact that God seems to have turned his back on him. Uh, that's what upsets him more than anything else. So if God is the most important thing in the psalmist's life, God turning his back on him is the most painful thing for this psalmist. And so the question for you is, is that true in your life? Is God the most important thing in your life? Uh, let's turn then to point number three, which is wrestling with God. Uh, thus far, we've seen the troubles that the psalmist is experiencing. We've seen uh, just how he's dealt with that, his emotions kind of the bearing of his soul. And we've seen, most importantly, the, the sense of being separated from God. But notice that throughout this song, there's a wrestling going on. The psalmist is wrestling. And he's doing that in a variety of ways, and I'll, I'll mention three of them. Um, he, he's really wrestling with God and wrestling with himself. And so the first thing he's doing is he's recognizing God's sovereignty. Um, you know, there's no question as you read this psalm, who does the psalmist think is responsible for the circumstances the psalmist finds himself in? Look at Psalm 42, verse 7. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. 42, verse 9. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Psalm 43, verse 2. Why have you rejected me? There's a clear sense of the psalmist recognizes that God is sovereign. God is governing all things, including all the, the difficult things that are happening to the psalmist. And so I think that's an important thing to recognize. The psalmist is recognizing God's sovereignty, and we need to recognize God's sovereignty, even in the midst of very difficult things. The second thing we see the psalmist doing is he asks God why. You know, when we, when we pray to God, when we interact with God, uh, we're called to honor and respect him, show him the, the glory and honor and praise he's due, and that's good, and the Bible gives so much of that. And having said that, though, look at the way the psalmist is not afraid to ask God very difficult questions. Right? He asks him, why? Why have you forgotten me? Why have you rejected me? And Psalm 42 and 43 are not the only psalms that do this. This is throughout the Psalter. If you looked at all the questions asked, it's constantly happening. God, why are you doing this? Why are you allowing this to happen? Why would you do this to me? This makes no sense. Why, why, why? And so as we experience troubles like the psalmist here, we should not be afraid to ask God tough questions. He can handle it. And we see the example of that from the psalmist. 
The other thing to think about that as we ask God why is uh, think of wrestling, right? So like high school wrestling. Is there, there's not a lot of ways to get more close to a human being than to wrestle with them, right? And so when you're wrestling with God, when you're asking God difficult questions, you're close to God. You're walking with God closely. And so in our wrestling with God, we're with him. That is so much better than sort of slowly withdrawing more and more and more, not interacting with God, not wrestling with God. The third uh, way we see wrestling in this psalm is the psalmist is wrestling with himself. He's preaching to his own soul. I mentioned before we read uh, the, the stanzas and the refrains in this psalm, the three stanzas in the same refrain. Well, look at that refrain now. Uh, it's repeated three times. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And so there's this back and forth that happens between the stanza where he's saying everything's horrible and I'm really upset about it and then the refrain where he's saying why are you downcast my soul hope in God it's a back and forth and I think this psalm really teaches us that as we're going through trouble we need to be honest we need to be upset we need to ask God why but at the same time we need to constantly purposely remind ourselves of how God is uh, you know the fact that God is uh, faithful that God can be trusted uh, to hope in him we need to preach to our own souls Um, a couple thoughts of uh, applicability here uh, just I think uh, two of them Um, first thing I'd say is as we're trying to figure out how do I how do I preach to my own soul how do I actually go about doing this on sort of a day-to-day basis Uh, the first thing I would mention is just the idea of lead your emotions don't let your emotions lead you uh, I, I think it was C.S. Lewis, I couldn't find in what book he said this, but he, he gives a story of this mother and her child. The child is very sad, upset about something, and the mother says, son, if you just smile, just start smiling. And son's apparently obedient enough to do that, and he smiles even though he doesn't feel like it. And then what happens is he smiles some more, and he starts to feel a little better, and he smiles some more and feels a little better, and he comes to find that he's not as upset as he was before. And the point of that story that C.S. Lewis is saying is, you know, we can lead our emotions. We can do that, and we don't want our emotions to be the engine at the front of our train. Uh, Martin Luther put it this way, feelings come and feelings go and feelings are deceiving. My warrant is the word of God, not else is worth believing. Uh, the second kind of thing to application I want to focus in on here again and sort of how do we preach to our soul? How do we really do this in a real way? Um, I think uh, one of the most important things is to recognize how critically important weekly church life is uh, to your soul. Um, you know, I, I mentioned when, you're, when you get depressed, it's hard to get up in the morning, and that's even more so true, I think, on Sunday morning. We're depressed. We don't feel like getting up. We don't feel like getting ready and going out to church. But I think there's nothing more beneficial, nothing more important to your soul at that point than coming, gathering with the people of God, worshiping uh, God, hearing the very promises of God, and doing that uh, continually. We see that in Psalm 43, verse 3. If you look there, it says, Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with a lyre, O God, my God.
Okay, and so we see the psalmist is longing to go worship. And as New Testament Christians, we don't have to go to Jerusalem. We don't have to go to the temple, right? We gather together. Where we gather, when we gather, that is when we experience uh, the presence of God. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson said it this way. The psalmist is thinking about worship as the remedy for his malady. By this, we are taught that the chief source of long-term improvement with respect to our depression is placing our life under a weekly biblical ministry. Without weekly exposure to the ministry of the word of God in the context of the people of God, you can expect little or no help for your downcast soul. Well, let us uh, turn to our fourth and our final point, which is clinging to Christ. And up until this point, you've probably thought, wow, you know, thanks a lot, guest preacher. You came in and you're pretty downer, uh, pretty depressing sermon. And uh, I appreciate that. I, I understand that. But the reason we spent so much time talking about external tragedies and internal despondency and wrestling with God is because Psalm 42, 43 spends virtually all of its time talking about that. If you read it, you see that is by far the main thrust of what's going on. But I now want you to think back. I, I said that verse 8 of Psalm 42 is this critical middle verse of the combined psalm, and, and that is where I want you to focus now. And it says this, By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. This is the crucial message of this psalm. This is the psalmist saying, you may have trouble, you may be very despondent about, but remember this, right? The God of my life. Uh, at night, his song is with me. There's a sense to say God is always with us. He never, act, you know, the psalmist feels separated from God, but God has not forsaken him. Uh, the way I want you to think about this more is, Think about it. all humanity, all of human history, there's only one human being that's trusted in God who's been forsaken by God. So one human being that's been, uh, that trusted in God who was forsaken by God, right? That was Jesus Christ, right? The Son of God. He came into this world. He humbled himself. He took on our flesh. Uh, he, you know, he dealt with all the things we dealt with. He, um, he, he dealt with temptation, with tragedy, with pain, with anguish. With sorrow, he suffered as we have suffered, yet without sin. And ultimately, he was willing to pay the price for our sin. He was willing to go to the cross to suffer and die on the tree. And when in this psalm, when we hear the psalmist being mocked by his enemies, where they say, where is your God? Do you not hear Jesus being mocked when he hung on the tree? He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. Where is your God? And when the psalmist asks God, why have you forgotten me and why do you cast me off? Do you not hear the very words of Jesus Christ on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? Jesus was forsaken. Jesus was abandoned. God did turn his back on Christ for your sake. Christ came, Christ died, Christ rose from the dead, conquering sin and conquering death. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father and he's interceding for you right now. That's the reality. That's the hope we have. And so this day, uh, for those of you out there who don't know Christ, right? if you don't know Christ, if you're not trusting in Christ, I want you to know that God will forsake you. God will turn his back on you. God will punish you. 
But in Christ, through faith in Christ, you can be saved. You can come to him. He will never leave you, never forsake you. And so this day is a day of salvation. Trust in Christ today. And for those of you that are trusting in Christ, Christian, know this. God will never leave you or forsake you. Christ has died for you. He's done the unimaginable for you. And because you are united in Christ through faith, you can know that he will never leave you, and that's your reason for hope. My favorite passage in all of Scripture is Romans chapter 8. I think, in my opinion, no passage in Scripture says it more clearly. Uh, And notice Romans 8 doesn't guarantee an easy life. Romans 8 doesn't guarantee a life free of trouble. Romans 8 doesn't even guarantee that you'll be alive tomorrow. But look at what Romans 8 does guarantee. If God is for you, who can be against you? Who shall separate you from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. That's our hope. No matter what we're dealing with, no matter how difficult it is, Jesus is our Savior and we have hope in him. So brothers and sisters, we've looked at Psalm 42 and 43 and I hope you've seen that we are taught that even in the midst of our external tragedy and internal despondency, we are to wrestle with God as we cling to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now, Lord, and and we recognize uh, that our lives are difficult that we do experience trouble, and it's so easy to get wrapped up in that and lose sight of who you are, Lord. And so we pray that this psalm, Psalm 42 and 43, this passage of Scripture and so much more of Scripture, Lord, that you would use this to really work in our hearts to turn us more and more to Christ, that we would forever cling to him. And we pray this all in his name. Amen. Thank you, Paul, for bringing God's word to us, encouraging word this morning. Uh, Just quickly before we turn to our uh, song of response, there are many uh, picket fences in life, aren't there? Some of them are really white and tall. But the Christian, and I particularly say this to you younger Christians and children, there will be a life of external tragedy and internal despondency and wrestling with God. We can, you, can, you can guarantee that in the Christian life. But like the old gospel song, Andre Crouch saying, through it all, right, we will cling to this wonderful Christ who is our Savior.